The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Are you ready for operational excellence? Welcome to the Visual Workplace, work that makes sense, where your host and visual workplace expert, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, shares powerful visual principles and practices to optimize your operations and make them safer, faster, better, and far less costly. The Visual Workplace. You can't get to excellence without it. Now, here's Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. Hello, and welcome. Welcome to The Visual Workplace. I am Gwendolyn Galsworth, your host on this, our weekly radio show about letting the workplace speak. In each show, we look at some aspect of that, of how to embed the intelligence of our operational system into the living landscape of work through visual devices and visual systems. And why do we do it? For the splendid bottom line benefits, remarkable cultural alignment, and simply so we can enjoy ourselves at work, flow instead of struggle. This week, we have prepared a very special show for you on a person who has been, well, a hero in my life. I recently had the pleasure of interviewing that person, who happens to be my brother, Gary Galsworth, a twice-published poet, a successful businessman, a long-time practitioner of Zen Buddhism. It certainly sounds like an uncommon combination, and yet I believe you will find, as you listen, that it all fits together in a way that is both interesting and inspiring and very human. I knew a lot of things about my brother. I learned a lot over the years. Of course I did. He was my brother. But I never knew he was a poet. I never knew until he emailed me some eight years ago. In the email he said, Hey sis, will you read this poem? And it was his poem. And I did read it. And it was astonishing. And I told him. And he asked me if I'd like to see others. Sure, I said. Hundreds came, hundreds upon hundreds of poems. He had been writing for over 50 years, and I never knew it. I never knew it. But within two years, his first book of poems was published, Yes, Yes, and this year his second book of poems, Beyond the Wire, came out. I invite you to listen to our exchange, my brother and I, as we talk about, well, the intersection you might say, of creativity and work. We are joining that conversation in progress. You know what? Instead of my telling you how Gary became a poet, I would like to welcome Gary Galsworth and let him tell you in his own words. Welcome, Gary. I'm so glad you could join us. Thanks, Gwen. Thanks for having me. Now, the truth be told, Gary is my brother and has been for many, many decades. So, Gary, tell me how that happened, how you were leading a very strong, uh, you, you had a strong family life. Uh, how did it happen that uh, you were you were called to write your first poem? How does one um, find out, figure out how, how, how that starts? It's, you know, I would say that, um, that myself, like many people, had a creative artistic gene in my genome. So, I, you know, I've always, I mean, when I was a kid, I used to sketch a lot and then I and drew and then uh, when I was in the Marine Corps stationed in uh, Okinawa for a while uh, I would uh, go to this tea house that I liked and um, a, a draw and uh, the kids from the neighborhood would uh, kind of gather around and look at this strange American guy it was a American guys didn't really go into that neighborhood so I've always been uh, you know had a artistic inclination and uh, I think that's probably more fundamental uh, to my makeup than the particular medium that I'm working in. You know, originally I was a painter. That was kind of interesting uh, development. You know, when I was in the Marine Corps, we were on a ship in the South Pacific. We were doing maneuvers in Borneo uh, with the Vietnamese Army. 
I was on guard duty uh, aboard ship. And when I got off and a Red Cross package had arrived. And um, when, by the time I got there, it had been completely pillaged by the other guys. There were two books left on the bottom. And one of the books I wasn't interested in. The other one I wasn't very interested in either. But it was called um, Lust for Life, The Letters of Van Gogh. And it was the more interesting of the two books that weren't very interesting. Uh, all the good stuff had been snatched. So <clears throat> I start reading it, and I was completely drawn into uh, the story and the lifestyle. You know, at that age, 17, 18-year-old Marines, we were all very sure that we were going to become, have an excellent life, very successful. We could do anything we wanted to do. We just didn't figure out exactly what it was and how we were going to do it, but the conviction was all there. So when I got done reading that book and I read it continuously for a couple of days, every minute I had, I was inflamed with the with this passion to be a, an artist. I, it just all came together. And um, when I got back, when we got back to our main base a while later, uh, I enrolled in art classes and uh, bought a record player and started listening to classical music. For the first time, if I remember correctly, we never heard any classical music until I went to school, and I guess you you were in the Marines. Uh, yeah, I would say the closest we got to was uh, Roll Out the Barrels. <laughs> My mom's singing. Um, so I remember sitting in the squad bay one evening with my record player and uh, Franz Liszt's uh, Hungarian Rhapsody Number no. 2 or 3 or whatever it was playing. You know, there's like 50 or 60 guys in his squad bay and there was a few guys around. It must have been a Sunday afternoon. We we're polishing boots and this and that, taking care of our gear. So I put on the Hungarian Rhapsody, which was this exhilarating uh, classical music for me. And... Uh, after about five minutes, uh, it started raining empty cans of Coke around me. <laughs> the other Marines. <laughs> what does that mean translated? Uh, the guys around the squad bay were throwing their empty Coke cans at me for listening to that kind of crap. And, and disturb, disturbing <laughs> their, their Sunday afternoon. <laughs> so anyway, I went to art school and studied painting. And then I um, left school. Uh, and uh, came back back a few years later, but by then I was into filmmaking, seriously, kind of transitioned from one to the other. That ran its course, kind of peaked uh, with a showing in the Whitney Museum of American, Young American Filmmakers. And an invitation to teach there, if I remember correctly. Uh, I don't remember that. Yeah, and you turned it down because you said you didn't want to, you saw the the other people who were teaching there, and you said, you know what, I don't want to be like them. Oh, that was a, that was in Wagner College out in Staten Island. Yeah, I did teach oh, part-time. I actually taught part-time, and then I, but I was doing plumbing at the same time. At that time, I, was, I started to teach myself plumbing because, uh, well, thanks to actually Gwen, because her friend Marvin was a maintenance man <laughs> at a big apartment house in the village, and I was on the street selling leather goods, and I was just burnt out from it. And I said, sis, I, I got to get off the street. I, I, can't, I can't do this anymore. Because all the artists at that time had some alternate way of making a living, of course. You know, they taught some of them. A lot of them drove cabs, which I did for a while. So what sis said was, listen, let me talk to Marvin. And Marvin was changing all the radiators in this 300 apartment building at the time. And um, he said he needed a helper. So I helped him, and by the time uh, we were done, I was a radiator expert. So uh, <laughs> it doesn't take long, does it? <laughs> no, no, it's a pretty simple, straightforward thing. And I had mechanical kind of inclinations. So um, we were, we were. Uh, that, that was the beginning of the Soho re re rehabilitation of so. Well, it wasn't really a rehabilitation. The change of Soho from cottage industries to artists' uh, loss. And um, and then and then also then professional people's laws. So I start working in Soho, and the my my rule of thumb was whatever anybody asked me to do, I said yes to, and then I went and found out how to do it. So I would be in there doing radiators, and uh, somebody would say, "Well, listen, I I need a new uh, kitchen sink put in. Can you do that?" And I'd say yes, and then I'd go and find out how to do it. And I remember the guy, my my friend at the supply house, he was a counterman, and he knew a, a lot about plumbing. 
So I'd go to the plumbing supply and I would ask him, you know, how do you put in this and how do you put in that? And one day he said, Gary, don't you say no to anything? So I learned, uh, I learned plumbing. You know, my radiator uh, expertise expanded into plumbing. So at that point, after about a year of doing a handyman plumbing on my own and learning everything I could, I said, you know, I've got to learn how to be a, a professional level plumber here. Um, because, you know, I, I wanted to, I wanted to be, uh, learn the tricks of the trade, as they say. So I got a job with this, I knew the, this plumbing shop, this guy, Sandy, who wanted, who was a kind of wannabe artist, or I, I don't want to degrade him, but he was a, a, somebody who wanted to be an artist, but never really uh, made the decision to, to do it. So what he did is he, hi- he had, he hired only serious artists for who were working as plumbers to make a living there were like five of us there was me really? there was a guy named john white there was another guy named <laughs> phil glass and i want to mention that that is the phil glass who's a very famous composer right and a couple other guys who i can't remember and i i remember that uh phil got recognized by the french government before um he got recognized over here, and uh, they gave him the money. Uh, sent him, uh, they gave him a grant to go to France for the summer, and I and I, and I took over the job that he was working on. And we were a very close shop, you know. Uh, plumbers kind of get bonded to one another in the, in the work, you know. It's uh, it's not a lot of thinking; it's a lot of hands-on work. So you're you, you know, at, no matter what kind of crap you come in with at the beginning of the day, by the end of the day, your head is pretty clear. Uh, the crap goes from your head and onto your hands, actually. Um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, so <clears throat> I remember taking over the job uh, and saying to Phil, uh, well, when your money runs out in France, will we see you back here at the shop again? And he said, uh, not if I can help it. <laughs> and uh, I, I kind of felt a little sad about that. But anyway, off he went. We never saw him again. Uh, but we heard about him. He, he did well. Um, and so I stayed there for a while, and then uh, you know one thing led to the other. Uh, I did. I was for a while teaching at Wagner College in the film department. I remember uh, one semester, I was, it was part time at night. It was kind of nice, and it was amazing because you know coming from the Lower East Side of New York, which was this hotbed of creative activity, it really was like this renaissance, this funky renaissance that was going on. To go to Staten Island was like going out to Iowa. The, the kids were so naive. They were interested and they were eager, but they were so pure. It was it was it was incredible that it could be three miles from Manhattan. But after a couple of years of teaching out there at night, I, I had to make a decision because my plumbing business was growing, and I had to make a decision whether to stop plumbing and teach more because they had asked me to take out another class, or to stop teaching and plumb more. And I looked at it around at the art department. I wasn't very attracted to that. You know, I liked the teaching part, but I, I, the faculty was a little bit hard to digest. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but the plumbers that I knew, I liked. They were kind of boneheads in their way, but they took care of their families. Uh, you know, they loved their children. They weren't all full of themselves. I guess that was the big thing. You know, the artist community, especially the academic one, if you're out on the street as an artist, you got to make a living. you got to do your work. You really don't have time to get too puffed up. But in the academic community, it's a much more humane environment. And these guys were so puffed up about nothing. And the plumbers were just hardworking guys. They had some kind of stupid ideas about certain things. But I respected them. And I said, you know, let me hang out with the plumbers for a while. So I quit my job and just did plumbing and art. And then after a few years, I stopped doing art. You know, I got into spiritual practice. And I my artistic inclinations kind of got moved into my um, meditation practice I kept doing plumbing and that was good and I kind of grew up a little uh, but then I started writing poetry when my daughter was when when Mimi was pregnant with our daughter I wrote a, a poem about her that was the first one I remember as it and that's in this book uh, called winter's passing so the fo- the artistic focus the artistic gene now the thing you know well, Walt Whitman said, i got a picture of him right here. He said, lounge and the muse will come. Now, you kind of have to be an artist to understand fully what that means. And what it means is, my father used to say about people who didn't like to work, he used to say they were on the bum. And when he didn't like the way I was behaving, he'd go, well, you're going on the bum. Which meant you're just, you're not having a purposeful life. 
And the irony about art is that if you get too purposeful, you elbow out room for the artistic gene to flourish. You, you, so what Walt Women said, said was lounge, which means just hang out, be on the bump, so, so to speak, or be disreputable. And you'll make room for your artistic inclination to flourish. And if you get too purposeful, you won't. I don't think you can kill your artistic dream gene, your artistic whatever you want to call it. Um, but I, I think you can elbow it out of the way and uh, it just sits there and waits for <clears throat> a change in the environment. So it can, you know, it's kind of like a plant that needs a certain type of environment. Uh, and if you, and you know, it's there kind of like a, an alien, you know, that the alien plant sits up there in outer space for and just waits. Some poor astronaut take bends down to take a look at what a little closer and then bam, it, it jumps up. Okay. Winter's passing. Would you mind reading it to us, please? A patch of old melting snow spreads across the mossy ground. How tenderly I love you. A brown leaf left with the passing of faraway autumn lies motionless before me. The loveliness of your black hair teases the memory in my fingers. Vines now brown and crisp with winter's passing clutch the pilasters between each arch and give this place the feeling of a cloister in medieval times. The beauty and innocence of your face, the passion that rests quietly in your eyes, warms me and clouds my thoughts. Tree limbs pierce the gray, uninviting sky in a thousand places, and the air is permeated with the feeling of transition. Spring will feel good against me and against the growing belly of my beloved. Very beautiful. So that one was... I mean, it was 50 years ago. Quite a while ago, since the kid is now in her 50s. My God, Gary. Yeah. 53 years ago, yeah. A lot of, a lot of, some of these poems are nice. Some of them are probably not quite book ready, but most of them are. See, like, here's a nice one. Flies. At a loft, I opened my mouth. Out flew flies. Plump ones. Shapely ones, too. And fly sh and horses, and horses, and a variety of drivel, and an insightful new angle on things. I closed my mouth and became a mushroom. Delightful, delightful. I became a mushroom. So, on that note, we go into our first break, and I'll be here when you get back. Are you ready to bring the power of the visual workplace to your company? Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, is available to help you harness and maximize that power. With nearly 30 years of hands-on experience, Dr. Galsworth shows you how through in-house seminars, site assessments, total company conversions, keynotes, coaching, and consulting. Learn about visuality through our books, DVDs, on-demand webinars, visual edge learning packages, and a host of other teaching materials. Enroll in the Visual Lean Institute and get trained and licensed as an instructor or QMI affiliate in any of our nine core visual workplace courses. Keep your visual workplace going and growing. Visit our website at visualworkplace.com to learn more about workplace visuality, our products and services, and when Gwendolyn will be presenting near you. That website again is visualworkplace.com. You're listening to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense, with Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's toll-free, 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to radio at visualworkplace.com. Now, back to the program. 
Welcome back to the second part of our conversation with Gary Galsworth, poet, plumber, businessman, brother. And by the way, his two books of poems are available on Amazon, Yes, Yes, and Beyond the Wire. And you can email Gary at gdplumber, gdplumber at aol.com or through our website, visualworkplace.com, either way. In this next part of our conversation, we talk about what Gary calls the creativity gene and finding the path with heart, something that might hold some special significance for you and other listeners. Again, we are joining a conversation in progress. You represent a very real world for my listeners, not just because you're connected with me and some of them like me, but it's because you were able to do these two things at once. You were able to hold down a job that required your hands and your feet. You know, you're an operator. But on the other side of you was this artistic piece which you nurtured like a little mushroom in the dark for decades. And only recently has it come out into something that the rest of us can see, enjoy, appreciate, and really be grateful for, your your book of poems. And that's the story that's interesting. I get what the, where this person is coming from. This person is an accomplished artist, an accomplished poet, has written hundreds upon hundreds of poems, has one book published, another one is coming out, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and yet is a plumber. Mm-hmm. What about that part of me that is uh, quietly waiting Mm-hmm. you know, like an alien beast ready to spring. Mm-hmm. What's the part of me? And he's had a family, he's had to pay mortgages, he's had his struggles. But in spite of all of that, he is still writing poetry. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to ask you in a moment, you know, it sounds as though you've written a book of poetry and it's been published and therefore, you know, your work here is done. But in fact, I must get... 20 new poems from you a month you are continuing to write poetry Mm. Uh, and and in fact you've gone through an entire plumbing company and now you're a retired plumber and you continue to write and and where is that coming from and what kind of words of encouragement would you say to people that may be sitting on a gift I want people to identify with you and with the fact that you said yes. And I, I think I want to say that you insisted on the title of this book. And we, I remember trying to convince you to call it other things like Bittersweet Rambles or something like that. But you insisted on it being called Yes, Yes. What, what, what happened? What was that about? That's a question that I want to ask you. Hmm. Well, you know, the thing about, um, about poems is... <clears throat> You you kind of trip over them, you know. They they develop in the subconscious or in the intuition, and then they uh, and they're sparked up by uh, an incident or a combination of incidents, and uh, and then they arise, and um, and you have to believe in them, you know. And for years, I I I wrote a, I wrote poetry, but I never took it seriously because I never saw myself as a poet, uh, but as a you know as a filmmaker and a and a painter, and I was had a had an, um, a goal to eventually get back painting. Filmmaking is just too much overhead and too many people involved. It's too, just too aggravating. So what happens is uh, a few years ago, my good friend Hannah Tierney, uh, we were talking about um, you know art. She's an accomplished artist herself and a performance artist, a puppet, puppeteer. Uh, and she said, um, you know, Gary, you should take your poetry seriously, uh, not if it's good or bad. That's beside the point. But you have something to say. You know, you have a life of experience, and if it comes out, if it expresses itself in poems, take them seriously. Look at them, work on them, um, share them, uh, but don't uh, you know denigrate them in your own mind because you haven't identified yourself as a poet. You know, your your poetry is as legitimate as anybody else's. The quality of our art is really not up to us. We do the best we can. Some people are great. Phil Glass is apparently a, an outstanding composer. He can thank his mom and dad for that. You know, he worked hard. He had to do the heavy lifting with the skill, with the gift. But you can't make yourself do great work. 
but you can, you do have a right to express it. And so after I had that conversation with her, I start looking at my poems as a legitimate uh, expression of my artistic expression of myself. So yes, yes came to me just like a poem. You know, it was, it was just <clears throat> the title of the book. It came to me, and when it came to me, I recognized that 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 was it with a lot of conviction. And the thing about poems, you can't explain them. You know, somebody asked a lot of questions of uh, 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 of Hemingway after when he was older about how he did it, what he did it, and all that stuff. And he said, you know, the more you talk about it, the more you uh, you dilute it. And so, because you can't explain explain uh, satisfactorily the uh, this kind of um, dynamic of conviction that one feels you know you know uh, somebody asked an old Chinese Zen master about how you figure it out you know the the, the, the mechanics of uh, our existence and he goes well that's a stupid question he says you know the difference between hot and cold and then the next thing is well explain hot and cold well you can't explain hot and cold but you know the difference you could spend the rest of your life explaining hot and cold and write your doctor's thesis on it but it doesn't make any difference you you don't have to you know the difference between hot and cold so that's that's my explanation for yes yes it was like you know it came up i recognized it as the title that that worked and uh, and then i stood behind it and then and then you kind of on an intuitive level when you work on your poetry or your art whatever it is your painting your film until you or your music, until it it seems to work perfectly or as as uh, to your comfort, you know, as much as you can. And then I, what I do is set the stuff aside for a few weeks, a few months, and read them again. And then it'll be a word or two that I want to change. And oftentimes the changes which seem appropriate at the time, when I look again, I go back to the way they were originally. So, Gary, what would you say to the kind of people who are going to be listening in? Some of them are CEOs. Some of them are uh, – a lot of them are teachers, trainers who do my kind of work in their own way. Right. What's, what's the message of the poet for folks who hold down a job as a plumber? Well, the message is, you know, there were this series of books written by uh, Carlos Castaneda's when we were, uh, you know, in, uh, in our formative years – in the, in the Lower East Side, I think you were a dancer. You were working with the Grotowski people, and I was uh, doing my thing. And everybody was passing around these books, uh, Carlos Castaneda's. And in it is this sorcerer, this kind of Zen master, but he's a Mexican Indian, who's a you know he's a realized being, right? And uh, his student is Carlos, and it's, they're, they're a great series of books. Anyway, at some point, he says, the most important thing you can do is follow the, your path with heart. He said, you can be rich, successful. You can get all kinds of positive recognition from the world around you. If you don't follow your path with heart, you uh, will not have a, uh, a successful journey. And so we all have to discover and give credibility to our path with heart. Uh, in my own example, I got really into being a plumbing and plumber and creating a successful plumbing company, learning how to do it. And it was good because as an artist, I was I, I had an unrealistic relationship with the world around me. It was too romantic. It was too idealized. And I was too impatient uh, and had too huge of a sense of entitlement. And none of it was ever um, tried out against the standards of everyday life because artists, you know, the artist world is an, a, a world that you can't really measure. Uh, and it's a, it's a refuge for a lot of us because we don't want to be measured. So the working as a plumber and where there's very specific measurements of success and failure and creating a business uh, was very good for me because it got me kind of grounded. And the business grew to be almost a million dollars a year. We had 11 people, including telemarketers and so on and so forth. And I was learning how to do it. It was, get, it was getting successful. And, um, and there's nothing like working your tail off. I mean, working really hard six, seven days a week and actually making money at it. Because most small businessmen do that, but they don't make any money because they don't learn how to run a business. And I was actually starting to make money at this business and bring home money and have some discretionary income. It really felt great. I love doing the work. But at one point, my daughter said to me, Undine, she said, Gary, calls me Gary. She said, Gary, why don't you go back to just being an, a plain, ordinary plumber again? 
What is this big business in America thing you're doing? You're unhappy and you're killing yourself. Well, what she was saying was that I, I had drifted off my path with heart, which was a hands-on person. I love doing plumbing. I love taking my toolbox, going into down into somebody's basement, spending a day there, fixing whatever's broke. And I, what I was doing was learning how to manage money, manage people, and manage marketing. And it was good for me to learn it, but it wasn't me. And it took me about a year and a half to realize that she was right. I mean, she planted the seed, and uh, I thought about it, and I gave up my business. So I went out of business. I mean, after in a way, you know. Uh, and then I became a plumber with. Uh, we had one helper, me and Eddie, another plumber. I hired, and it was so there were. We went from eleven to two of us, plus we shared a helper, and then eventually just myself and a helper. And I was very happy, uh, but that was my true. Uh, a much truer relationship with things than my uh, big business in America thing, which I felt like I had to do. And I was lucky that I had to give it up, that I, that I was able to give it up because of um, I was able to think my th- way through it. Mm-hmm. And I, I would say to people that you, you need to give yourself the opportunity to allow your path with heart to, uh, to tell you what it is. And then do your best to listen to it because we live in an environment where we've created the the unconditional truth of our relationship to things around us is embedded in purposeful activity. And I don't understand. Is, I don't understand what you just said. Well, in other words, you you have to have a, a a very specific agenda with a payoff at the end, and you and that's not suitable for for everybody. You know, like for me, the act of now I got paid very well for fixing people's plumbing, but the act of actually fixing things with my hands was very gratifying for me and I made enough money to take care of myself and my family so it was fine. I had an opportunity to create a multi-million dollar business and move into a whole different tier but and I could have done it but it wasn't me so I, 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 I let that go. But one of the reasons that I was able to do that was I you know in my life in particular and and other people have to find their own equivalent. I do go on these uh, used to be these Zen meditation retreats a couple of times a year, and now it's Vipassana retreats. But I I give myself I sit down and shut up for a week at a time. Okay, now your mind doesn't shut up and your intuition doesn't shut up. So when you sit down and be still, your mind keeps working and things bubble up and and your decision making process gets a little more honest with with yourself and that's what happened to me and so for, for for all my adult life I've been going you know since I was in my early 30s to these retreats a few times a year and somebody somebody asked me how you know what the what the function of these things were and what I told them is not what they expected I said you know really what they give you is receptivity when you sit down and shut up and allow things to happen around you you have to let go of everything you're holding on to that would get you off the cushion and that process makes you receptive and all the answers are out there we don't have to reinvent the wheel for anything but we stand between i mean the the, the thing that gets it between us and the answers are is us so if we can get ourselves out of the way whatever our issues are whatever our whether they be drug and alcohol issues, whether it be financial issues, whether it be relationship issues, uh, issues with our kids, with our partners, the answers are all there. Uh, but if but we can't see them because we're in the way. This exchange continues in a moment. But first, we'll head into our second break. Are you ready to bring the power of the visual workplace to your company? Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, is available to help you harness and maximize that power. With nearly 30 years of hands-on experience, Dr. Galsworth shows you how through in-house seminars, site assessments, total company conversions, keynotes, coaching, and consulting. Learn about visuality through our books, DVDs, on-demand webinars, visual edge learning packages, and a host of other teaching materials. 
Enroll in the Visual Lean Institute and get trained and licensed as an instructor or QMI affiliate in any of our nine core visual workplace courses. Keep your visual workplace going and growing. Visit our website at visualworkplace.com to learn more about workplace visuality, our products and services, and when Gwendolyn will be presenting near you. That website again is visualworkplace.com. You're listening to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense with Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call one 866 472-5790. That's toll-free, 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to radio at visualworkplace.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back. As you may recall, just before the break, Gary was talking about the concept that all the answers are known and they are already there. And as you'll hear... I have some questions about that. Let's rejoin the conversation. Hold on, Gary, because I've always found that kind of response flat or deceptive. It isn't, my experience is, it isn't there. It hasn't been always in, already invented, which is what I hear you say, and I don't think you mean when you say it's already there. But the answers are not that far away, and you can't reach them if you keep, you know, kind of in, be in constant activity, that the answers aren't there uh, as much as uh, you can't hear them because every, there's so much noise around you. Right. Is that what you mean? You, you have to create a poem and you, you, you've created this business system, this system of, uh, of efficiency, be, being more efficient in, in business that is brand new. You know, these, each poem is brand new. So it's not like the poem is... is it's it's more um, that it's found in the quiet, not in the noise, or is that too simplistic? Well, it's the answers are the answers to everything that we need to find are 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 out there to be found. Okay, even if it leads us to inventing something completely new, you know, whether it's a vaccine or whatever. But there's still a path, and that that's already there, but it's obscured by by activity by our activity. Okay. Okay. And. And when we put a stop to the physical activity, because the physical activity is nothing more than an, than an actualization of our mental activity. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so whatever we do physically originated in some thought that we got attached mm-hmm. to and we want to uh, manifest, right? We want to actualize. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's this continual cause and effect thing uh, that keeps us busy. Mm-hmm. And if we don't sit down and be still and stop actualizing our thinking, we never get to see our thinking. Very good. Okay. We see the results of our thinking, but we don't see the thinking. So when you sit down, you kind of give your whole brain or that whole process a chance to kind of air itself out. Mm-hmm. And you and it reveals a lot of important information to to us that is otherwise obscured, including how to find our own personal freedom. So read us another poem. Oh, okay. What about the Yes, Yes poem that this book was based on? Yes, yes. Let's take a look at that one. Rain to ice to crystal morning. Crystal clear inside, crystal clear out. Through our kitchen window, oaks covered in diamonds, ours for the taking. Warm as toast we were, early morning smiles passing back and forth. Countless smiles, kisses beyond counting. Our breasts compliant in this mystery of promises. The world beyond glazed and crisp. Rain to ice to crystal clear. Mm, it's lovely. And, and another, please. Uh, okay, let's see. Um, okay, this is the one I like. Rain buds. A pasture near the, that big red barn where we passed a calf just as it got born. The farmer in black knee boots struggling through a wet meadow, his two dogs bounding and yelping. The boots were a chore to move fast in, he trying to reach the newborn before the dogs, excited as hell, did any mischief. A drizzly, drizzly day it was, the road slick. We pulled over to maybe help and watch. 
I can feel the rain on my face and eyelashes and see your hair covered in rain buds. We stood on the road in some wonder and some worry. The calf didn't even know she was born. A yellow glow came off her. Some of that glow touched us, and though we felt as wanderers hand in hand, it was you who brought me to such unlikely places, and it left me quietly beholden. Mm, gorgeous, gorgeous. So if you were to choose one more poem, just if you were, what would it be in that book? And then we'll move to um, Beyond the Wire. Used to fish here. Used to fish here as a kid. Carp, sunnies. Me too, he said. I grew up just over there, pointing. He was less than half my age, but we spoke of it as contemporaries. I got a four-year-old, he said. So been coming back. A carp broke the surface about 20 feet out. Not like it used to be, he said. Really? What's changed? Having just had a conversation with myself walking the path around the lake on how it all seems so unchanged. Ducks honking in the weeds, bushes overhanging the water, fireflies rising out of the grass. Gorgeous. Yes, gorgeous. Just gorgeous. And may I take a moment and indulge my love of Gary's poetry and read you one of my favorites from Yes, Yes. It's called In the Half-Light. In the Half-Light. Sitting still in the half-light, a quiet of sorts, my mind retreats to the familiar, working over old difficulties, conflicts without end. The stream out back sings perfect duets with the insects of evening. Determined to have its way, mind moves to a more secure position. Stream sounds, a bit wild from yesterday's rain, flow through an open window to soak me in their murmur. And you can get Gary's books of poems to enjoy for yourself on Amazon, in print, and on Kindle. Yes, yes, his first book, and Beyond the Wire, which he will read from when we get back. Are you ready to bring the power of the visual workplace to your company? Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, is available to help you harness and maximize that power. With nearly 30 years of hands-on experience, Dr. Galsworth shows you how through in-house seminars, site assessments, total company conversions, keynotes, coaching, and consulting. Learn about visuality through our books, DVDs, on-demand webinars, visual edge learning packages, and a host of other teaching materials. Enroll in the Visual Lean Institute and get trained and licensed as an instructor or QMI affiliate in any of our nine core visual workplace courses. Keep your visual workplace going and growing. Visit our website at visualworkplace.com to learn more about workplace visuality, our products and services, and when Gwendolyn will be presenting near you. That website again is visualworkplace.com. listening to The Visual Workplace, Work That Makes Sense, with Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's toll-free, 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to radio at visualworkplace.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back. And now, we're going into Gary's latest book of poems, Beyond the Wire. Tell us about the new book, Gary. Uh, yeah, the new book is called Beyond the Wire. And uh, and what is the what's the title about Beyond the Wire? In my mind, that we all have this fearful landscape in front of us somewhere that we have to protect ourselves from, but we also have to enter into and and deal with it. You know. You know, in the First World War, there was the barbed wire. In the Second World War, in uh, Vietnam, there was the, bur- the berms. 
but and they all had this bob wire this constantino wire out in front of them and beyond that was no man's land you know and we all have our no man's land that we have to kind of come to terms with and i'm actually right now looking at the poem beyond um the wire and it seems to be about your father about my father would you would you read it please i consider my father a hero problem that he was in many ways what he did what he didn't do left came back ran out but came back looking out beyond the wire it'd scare the crap out of anyone but he kept the secrets he was sworn to keep kept those the big ones the ones you could beat someone to death with And he told us his stories and answered our questions, which we asked again and again, and our delight with how he answered them. An inspection by professionals may have found him wanting, a a bit of an imposter, a house with only three sides and holes in the roof, the rest a fill of plastic and tarpaulins. But even incomplete a bulk work, the gaps filled with expectations, memories, lies, that bulk work behind which children feel safe from miscellaneous predators, roving bands of Huns, the loud, the hungry. Halloween-like, ancient history has been seeping up out of the damp ground, a streaming of phantoms pointing and gesturing. I feel obliged to answer for him. Heroes don't, don't leave their posts. Pop did. But he came back, picked up rifle and bayonet. A child's rubber bat would have served and proceeded into no man's land. That's wonderful. And one more. And give us a little background on this, Gary. Uh, okay. Uh, well, you know, we had Hurricane Sandy. And uh, my plumbing shop and the building that, the building that uh, I own there with my plumbing shop in it went under about four feet of water for about four days. And then, uh, then the cops let us back in, and the water receded, and uh, we started cleaning it up. You know, and the whole town of Hoboken was—I mean, a good portion of the town had had the same experience. So we were in the middle of this: uh, no electricity, filthy, muddy, devastated area. And I remember, like, there was Red Cross trucks set up in the park that was four blocks away. We couldn't get to that park. We were so caught up with trying to, you know, just get get ourselves uh, out of this mess that um, uh, nobody could stop to even go to the Red Cross truck. The idea of going was just, we, we didn't even entertain it. It was just out of reach. It wasn't an indulgence. It was just out of reach. Uh, there were another other trucks set up on the Washington Street, which was up on the hill in Hoboken. Uh, but that was another four blocks away. We were down in the, in the middle of it. And so we just, I remember, you know, a lot of energy bars. But one afternoon, late in the afternoon, this little red car came by, a little old, um, uh, might have been an old Toyota, came by. And these four ladies got out from the local, from the local church. And they, one carried a kettle and the other carried a bunch of bowls. And they, they, all, they had hot chicken noodle soup for us with these real thick noodles. It was like like angels <laughs> and i said well, what why didn't the red cross think of this we're, we're over here really in distress and they set up this truck but we can't get to it <laughs> and these old ladies come by from the church and bring us soup it was wonderful that was a nice uh, moment so anyway this is about that experience <clears throat> hurricane the thing about a hurricane about a flood the thing about the filth the mountains of sodden possessions growing on sidewalks, in the streets, and it's still raining, is it tells us, dragging another heavy bag or end table from homes, now more hovels, to let it go. Don't look back for a third bitter time. Don't look too far ahead and don't look back, not right now. You don't have to. My boots are half filled with water. I'm too busy to pull them off and empty them. What for? Wet is wet. They'll just fill up again. It's greenish, this water. From the ocean and the river, from the street and below the street, from drowned cars and oil tanks, from all of us. If there is a lesson, it's in the socks. Mine are a terrible bother. Clammy, wet, slippery, and falling down around submerged ankles. 
and all this right now I could do without those cold, clammy rags embracing my feet. Reaching for a box, which disintegrates at the touch, all funky, and in the wetness, a picture, so tiny by comparison, of our child, or of us as a child, damaged, damaged, smeared, but you know what? Peeling it away, it might dry out. Fantastic. Well, Gary, I want to thank you very much for your time and for sharing your life, both as a plumber and as a poet. Both of them seem to be very important, and it's been uh, just wonderful to share this time and to, to know that others are listening and appreciating. Yeah, and, you know, find a time somehow or the other. You know, you owe it to yourselves in this journey that moves very quickly. To sit down, close your mouth, and just see what what's behind all that. You know, allow yourself that. It's, uh, it's the least we can do. For ourselves. For ourselves, yeah. And where can we reach you, Gary, if we want to uh, write you a note and say we really liked your poems? Uh, you could yeah, my email gdplumber at aol.com gdplumber yeah. Gary what does that stand for gdplumber GD, uh, my plumbing shop is in Hoboken which is in North Jersey and my uh, office manager and bookkeeper uh, Eva um, well, you know 20 years ago when we created our 30 years ago <laughs> she said we're going to call it Gary the Plumber <laughs> gdplumber I said gdplumber what's that it's Gary the Plumber Well, that's it. I hope you have enjoyed this interview with Gary, my brother. (laughs) I am thrilled to have introduced him to you. I cannot tell you how many times I reach for his poems and simply read them again, aloud, or silently in my heart. And I laugh out loud, and I feel the bittersweet of life and its beauty. For me, his poems are complete and splendid and a testament to the richness that we hold inside. And when we get very lucky, we find a way to share them on the outside. This is Gwendolyn Galsworth. I'm signing off. Let the workplace speak. appreciate your joining us this week for The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense. Please tune in for another episode next Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, featuring your host, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, on the Voice America Business Channel. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.